Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined via phone line by author George Saunders, who stopped by New Orleans this week for a reading. He is a critically acclaimed author of several short story collections, and last year released his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which was awarded the Man Booker Prize. He also contributes stories to publications such as The New Yorker and GQ, and teaches at the Creative Writing Program in Syracuse, New York. How are you doing today, George? Pretty good, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, you're going to be coming to New Orleans uh, on Tuesday, I believe, right? Yeah, my first uh, first reading appearance ever. Actually, I'm excited. Oh, that's fantastic. You've never been to New Orleans before? Yeah. I've been in New Orleans, and I have family there, but I've never done a book, you know, book-related event there ever. Oh, fan- fantastic. Do you have uh, cl- close family, yeah. cousins or something? Yeah, my parents live there, and my sisters, and my nieces and nephews, and just so every all of my uh, immediate family lives there. Oh wow! So like like the the big family, the uh the actual. Right, right, and they're not from there, but they've been there. I think you know twenty years or something. So it's pretty much their home. Yeah, I get that. Well, cool. Well, thank you for coming on here and and joining me uh, from your drafty hotel room in St. Louis. I appreciate it. Um, to kind of, if you hear anything, it's me starting a fire in here. <laughs> Good. I will. I will take no offense to that. Obviously, um, well, to kind of kind of start us off, I I'm excited to talk to you a lot of things, uh, especially the book that you released last year, Lincoln and the Bardo. Uh, but I wanted to start off with um, a piece you wrote for the New Yorker a couple years back now called "Who Are All These Trump Supporters?" And I wanted to ask you, um, how did you get that assigned to that piece, and what were your goals in it? Well, uh, David Remnick called, and we, we'd been talking about doing some nonfiction for a long time, and he just said, you know, I, I come from kind of a uh, south side of Chicago, and I've done some weird jobs in my life and know a little bit about the working life, so he thought that would be a good fit to uh, to go and just sort of, um, he, he was kind of open-ended, he said, just something about the Trump movement. So I went to two rallies in, or two or three rallies in Arizona, and then in Wisconsin, and then in California. Uh, so it was kind of just that, you know, I like to do those pieces every now and then just to kind of put my head into the world again and confuse myself. And so that, that, that piece definitely fit the bill. No, I could see that definitely. And what was it like being there during that time? It was in June of 2016 and interviewing these people in a very kind of tumultuous mess, you know, on, on both sides of, uh, people that they were there for, uh, now president Trump, as well as, uh, people that were protesting him. Well, it was different. You know, I, I didn't know what I was going to find and just before he was nominated. So I, I could still think of it as kind of a, a little niche movement, but it was really energetic and uh, kind of angry. And um, it was, you know, it's kind of interesting in retrospect because I I, I didn't know what I was seeing. And uh, so now it's a distance for a little bit of time. I can kind of, kind of see what was going on. But it was confusing, you know. The, I mean, first of all, the... Um, you know, the charge to write about, quote-unquote, the Trump supporters is pretty broad. I mean, it's a lot of people. So it was a bit like, you know, write about people who like baseball versus football. It turns out there are so many, you know, people who are uh, involved in that movement for different reasons. And then I guess the biggest thing I took away was what now almost seems commonplace, was just this extent of the divide between the left and the right and how unbreachable that was. I'm, you know, I'm a liberal, somewhat somewhat left of Gandhi, and uh, it was just, you know, always interesting to be face-to-face with somebody who's nice enough and you're having a nice conversation and you get to a point where you see that you are drawing on different factual universes. And uh, so it was the beginning of a, a much deeper confusion that I have now about the whole political situation in our country. No, I can see that uh, entirely. And, and I love that way in the piece that you go 
kind of play-by-plays of, of people on opposing sides of these thought processes going at each other and kind of that that tribal interaction, which is a microcosm of, you know, any argument you'd see on the Internet every single day now. Yeah. Well, it was it was kind of funny to feel it come apart in front of me. There, be, there was one scene where there were these two guys who I think both had been in the Marines, and they were on opposite sides, and they were screaming at each other. And you could see that it wasn't doing any good for either one of them. They were both kind of a little heartsick about it. And uh, so, you know, the, the, I just finished this Lincoln book, actually, and went on that tour. And it was kind of a process of, um, I, I guess America was being made more real to me when I thought about Lincoln for four years and then dropped into the campaign. You just see that it's a pretty beautiful country that never has quite lived into its promise. And maybe, too, the idea that people understand it in different ways. You know, I understand it to be uh, about, well, about what it says it is, which is equality for everybody. And basically everybody is a fully valid child of God and has got to be treated that way. And then other people I thought think see it a little more... Um, to me, it felt like fearfully, you know, that America was about gathering certain things and not giving them up no matter what. Uh, so it's, a, you know, like any, I, I guess, for th- like any piece of writing, what you want is to be confused by it and to kind of be led deeper into the the details of, a, of, a, of an issue. Uh, and then I find that that usually makes me a little less certain, you know, maybe a little more open, a little more sympathetic, but less less partisan and uh Actually, a little more sad, to be honest with you. All yeah. these nonfiction pieces I've done, you get out there and you see that the pain is real, the anger is real, uh, the violence is real, and uh, there aren't really any solutions handy. So in a kind of a paradoxical way, I like that. I like to be made less sure of myself and to be kind of mystified a little bit by things. No, I get that. And that's one of the things I, I, I reread the piece again a few days ago just to kind of get in. I remember really admiring it when I read it the first time and being something sort of different from what I'd been reading because it meant to be um, as all-encompassing as you can be with all these nuanced fragments going in. And then, like you said, really trying to put pieces together there that, that maybe don't quite fit together. Um, it, it was really interesting yeah, to kind of return. I, I love- yeah, I, I love the model of, I mean, it comes from fiction, and for me, it's particularly Chekhov, where in his stories, there'll be two or three competing ideas, uh, and as a reader, you you keep waiting for Chekhov to weigh in and tell you what to think, but what he's really good at is just making compelling uh, or persuasive cases for each point of view, and then he kind of just steps back, you know, and it's kind of like, thus it is, and I think Shakespeare does the same thing, so I, I like that idea that that um, although we human beings are very comfortable, more comfortable with judgment and knowing where we stand, uh, we're actually probably better when we're comfortable with ambiguity and confusion. And, and you know, in that piece, and I, I was really just trying to find stylistic ways or, or linguistic ways to let my own very genuine confusion into the piece. Because I'm from, you know, like I said, I worked a lot of jobs, and I'm, in all my fiction, I'm very, very sympathetic with the working class and there was certainly uh some working class angst in the trump movement but then to go into it and find out that there was also some stuff that wasn't working class angst because you didn't see a lot of working class people of color at their rallies mm-hmm. uh and there was a lot of racial or racialist undertones and overtones and just some general misinformation people who were relying on uh unreliable sources for their news and so again just say that to confuse yourself to a certain extent is good because it, I think it opens up your heart basically. 
No, I get that. And to kind of to kind of move on from that into um, to Lincoln and the Bardo, um, congratulations on the, the Man Booker Prize, by the way. How are you feeling about that? Thank you. Mm, good. <laughs> I was, I'm still surprised as the day I got it, but I'm feeling really good about it. Well, good, good. I'm glad. Um, well, to kind of kind of start at the beginning of, of the, the writing process, you've you've written as well as talked about um, this image of Lincoln in the crypt with his his young son who had just passed away, really affecting you and kind of like spurring on this writing moment. Um, and I'm interested why that had such an effect on you. Was it was it something personal or was it something abstract? Have you ever really quantified that? No, I never have. I you know I find that in in fiction there are just certain little ideas or images or notions that will kind of get in my head and not go away. And I don't really usually know why. And in a certain way, it's not that important. I just if there's something that's powerful and compelling, and it doesn't go away, I know okay, there's something to this for me. I don't know why. And often as you're writing, you're almost trying to figure that out. Why is this? Why is this idea not going away? I think in that case, it was just the um, well, in some ways, it was just a sort of gothic element that a, that a person at that time uh, could and would want to physically interact with the corpse of somebody that he loved. I mean, they were more comfortable with death then. Uh, also, the notion that Lincoln could just leave the White House alone and go spend some time in a graveyard was was uh, compelling just because it was so different from our, our present reality. Yeah. But um, And then there was something, too, about the physical confinement of the story possibly that would all take place in one night in this one graveyard but um you know i've kind of learned that if if ideas are persistent i i'm almost uh i just want to be respectful and come up to them saying i don't know why you're interested in me but would you let me look around here a little while and that was kind of like that after after a 20-year delay as all good things you know that that are good uh, have to wait in order to be made right I, I mean, this one sure did. I, I not only I just tried to not make it. I tried not to do it. I, I felt like it was going to be way too hard. So it was uh, an interest of something that uh, I think what happened was I kind of grew my meager abilities over the years to where I could finally feel comfortable enough to take on something that 20 years ago seemed a little earnest and a little straight, you know, for me. So that was, I guess, that was some indication of growth, I suppose. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. And um, also with with this idea, you know, waiting 20 years for it, were there other uh, novel ideas up in contention for, you know, the prize of your focus or was this always the one that was working towards it? It was always the, um, the, the one that I turned to when I felt happy, yeah. you know, like when I finished another story or book and I was feeling like, oh, good, that's, you know, you're free of that one. What would you most like to do? This idea would always drift by, and generally, you know, over that period, I just think, nah, I don't. That's, I don't know. I couldn't figure out a voice in which to do it. I, I tried it, you know, I tried it as a play for a while, and it never really took took uh, fire. So it was just something, you know, it was almost like um, an aspirational thing. I thought someday, uh, you know, that would be a real stretch to try to try to do that. So about 2012, I just was. Uh, I'd finished this 10th of December, my free, previous book, and I, I kind of felt, gosh, you know, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? And and more than that, why am I so afraid of this? You know, and I kind of had a conversation with myself, and the answers were like, well, it's it's too uh, sincere. There's too much heart in it. It's got too much about love. Uh, you know, all these answers that actually are reasons to try to do it rather than to avoid it. So 
I kind of did this little psychological gamesmanship where I just gave myself like a six month contract and said, okay, look, don't tell anybody you're starting it. If you, if it's no good, you can just pretend like you were, you know, taking six months off. <laughs> just, it's almost like I had to do that in order to grant myself permission to, to try it, you know? So, yeah. I get that. Of, lots of, when you, I think for, for an artist, a lot of it is actually, you know, you have a certain talent, small or large, and then you have a secondary sort of a talent for having that talent, which is a lot of tricking yourself, actually, or, or kind of easing the way for yourself uh, with kind of a little bit of uh, sometimes reassurance, sometimes strictness, sometimes uh, kind of system of rewards and you know, not altogether healthy, but. Yeah, no, no, I understand. Um, you mentioned before in, in that that response about you know the sweetness of it. You know, it is a very tender moment that, if, if done in the wrong way, could could be very saccharine or almost off-putting. Um, as a writer, how do you balance your your want to you know show these tender moments in a way that doesn't become saccharine? Yeah, well, in a way, you you've just said it. That's what you do is you you try to be aware of the pitfalls. Yeah. You know? So you know, you, you kind of say, okay, buddy, you're writing this scene that could really go over the top. Don't do that. You know, <laughs> then as you're going, I do a lot of rewriting. So you're always kind of got your finger in there. Like, okay, am I too far in this direction, too far in that direction? And kind of like riding a bike, you know, you, you're constantly counterbalancing, which is something, you know, you, you have that ability if you rewrite a lot, because yeah. then let's say you do it wrong. That's not a big problem. Come back the next day and you adjust it. Uh, so part of it, I think, is of all stories, is to be aware of how it could go wrong. I did, I did some work with a, a producer in Hollywood, and, and uh, he said, you know, could you write this? Just add a little domestic scene in the kitchen between the wife and the husband. And I said, yeah, but you know, if we if I do that and we shoot it wrong, it could be so corny. And there was kind of a long pause, and he goes, how about we don't shoot it wrong? <laughs> You know, so in art, it is always not really a matter of what you do, but how you do it. And and I think to be totally aware of of what a moment is rife with is actually part of the artistic thing. You know, yeah. uh, then you can always kind of catch yourself. And I think you're in that dance with the reader. You know, if you say, I'm going to write about Lincoln going into his son's crypt, every reader kind of bristles with it and goes, oh, I don't know. That's that's a pretty raw moment that could easily descend into something not so good. And you say, yeah, I agree with that. Let's see if we can not shoot it that way, you know. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, you know, for, for our listeners that may not be aware, um, what exactly is a bardo uh, by your definition? And why did you decide on that, that framework and, and setting for telling the story? Well, the bardo is a Tibetan word that means transitional zone or transitional space. So we're in one now, the one that starts at birth and goes to death. And the one in the book is is the uh, the bardo starts at the moment of your death and goes to whatever happens next. So the idea is the, the story told by all these bardo beings or kind of ghosts, basically, who are, uh, you know, for whatever reason, couldn't leave. Uh, they died, and they just sort of seized up for different reasons. And generally, they're just, they have too much attachment to the world, whether they're too happy with it or too uh, frustrated with it. So they're kind of uh, willfully you know, staying behind. Uh, I think it was partly just a matter of, of narrative expediency because I didn't really want Lincoln to narrate the book. And actually there was, you know, nobody else around. So you kind of look, look around, so who can narrate this thing? And then once you, once I had that idea, it was exciting to me to think about 
a book told by people who had gotten kind of a rough shake in life, you know, people who, uh, you know, just didn't reach a point in their earthly existence where they were satisfied with it. And, um, and so that also gives you an incredible range of characters. You, you know, theoretically you could have people who died 200 years ago in this graveyard, people who died 20 minutes ago. Uh, and then the other part of it that I liked was that, you know, this kind of Buddhist notion that if you if you want to know what your death is going to be like, look at your mind right this moment. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a different mind that you die with. So, um, and then, so whatever your, in the Tibetan tradition, say, whatever your uh, sort of mental habits are right now and tendencies, they'll get supersized after your death. So if you're, uh, you know, a, a greedy person, multiply it by 100,000. Or if you're a little self-accusatory, multiply it by 100,000. So that gives you a lot of, you know, a lot of paint to throw around in a dramatic sense. Yeah, no, I understand that. You don't have to answer this. This is a personal question, obviously, but what what do you think your personal bardo would be if you were to go there at this moment? <laughs> I think it's just, um, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of self-involvement about writing. I really like writing. I'm really happy that I've accomplished something. So I'll sometimes look and think, wow, you're really thinking a lot about your career, you know, a lot about your aspirations. And sometimes it's just sort of career and sometimes it's more, uh, more pure artistic concern, but there's a lot of inward, uh, inward energy. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really, um, you know, I've got a pretty strong sense of the person I'd like to be. I'd like to be kind of really, really uh, full of love for other people and, and calm. And unfortunately, you know, in real life, I'm a little bit anxious and I often feel that moments go by when I missed an opportunity to be helpful, uh, had my head, you know, had my, my, was too much in my own head. So I think, you know, it might just be I'm pinned under a tremendous writing pen or something like that. <laughs> can't, can't get up. But, you know, one of the fun things about this book is you, okay, so you're positing an afterlife and you know, you have to kind of be a little humble about that because who knows what the heck's going to happen. So part of the the fun was to kind of build into this Bardo a kind of an absurdist uh, strain so that it didn't look like any other representation of the afterlife that we've seen before. You know, kind of the idea that if, you know, no matter what your religious beliefs are, if you died and heaven was exactly what you thought it was going to be, that would be weird. You know, it would imply that you were much more godlike than you imagined. So to, to let the afterlife throw me a few curves in the writing process is really fun and try to make a, a kind of weird ride for the reader. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I, I see that throughout that, that kind of playfulness with it. You had mentioned um, trying to write this as a play at first and you know that that comes in with the format that you're using with the mixture of oral histories and um, almost like a, a playwriting format right there, which I, which I love. Uh, how was it to kind of experiment within that? It was fun. I mean, I I look at it, and that book really was 20 years in the making because I had another novel way back in the late 90s, I think, that was set in a graveyard, had kind of a theatrical format. Uh, that one never really took off, but there was something intriguing about doing it that way. And then, um, you know, other elements, like I had a, a former student who said to me just offhandedly, if you ever write a novel, you should do it in all monologues. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for me, the when I'm trying to decide what to do, if I can feel a little flicker of, of joy, joy or excitement or intrigue, that's, that's really the best barometer. And when he said that, I went, Oh yeah, that would be fun. You know? <laughs> so for me, that phrase, that would be fun. That's really important. And 
writing. And I, you know, when I was younger, I thought, no, fun. It's, art's not about fun. It's about being deep or being profound or being maybe even stupefying, you know, to your reader. Mm-hmm. But the more I do it, I see that if the artist doesn't have kind of a initial charge of excitement about it, then she's not going to be able to, to endure it long enough to make something really beautiful. You have to do so many, so much rewriting and so much restructuring and reimagining that unless it's fun, you you know, you're not going to really have the energy to do it. If you had to go on a, you know, a 30,000 mile car trip, yeah. you know, hopefully your companions are fun. Otherwise it's going to feel like a yeah, you know, hundred thousand mile car trip. Yeah, <laughs> a trudge for. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I see that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, speaking of your writing, but that and... runs a little counter to what we. That runs a little counter to what we often hear. You know, the tortured writer and the person who's struggling and yeah. so on. But uh, you know, I think most things in life that that go deep, they they kind of work better if they come out of some kind of positive emotion. Doesn't mean it's always enjoyable, but uh, if it draws you in. Uh, you're going to be more uh, more energetic as you go through it. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, you know, talking about your, your writing life and, and what you do with that, um, do you have any certain rituals that you do when you're writing, any certain ha- habitual things? you need a cup of coffee on the desk, um, something like that? Probably coffee is, is a good one. With this book, I got into graham crackers for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of... Um, you know, both both emotional engagement, but also kind of technical engagement. I had to be really uh, moving stuff around. So I found that I would work in bursts and then kind of, especially at the very end, go in the house and kind of go, okay, let's try to regather our energies, you know, almost like you want to be super alert when the messenger comes. Yeah. So I'd go over to that. I'd, I'd write in a separate little shed and I'd go into the house and have some, have a grand pepper and listen to some music that I love. And then when I felt... Uh, kind of sufficiently reminded of what beauty would be I would rush back to the shed and go again but but I you know I started writing you know years ago at work actually and uh that was great training I was kind of stealing time and uh, fitting it in when I could so I think what happened there was somehow I taught my brain a little trick which was I give it just a little bit of advanced notice like okay we've got a moment and then something goes a little quiet in my head and um it's almost like uh, preparing backstage or something, or, or you put on a certain superhero costume and you feel tougher. There's just a little mental click that happens. So now I can pretty much write anywhere. I don't really need a lot of ritual. Um, and uh, as I said, for me, it helps if I'm a little bit happy. Just a slight good mood is, is helpful. Uh, so sometimes if I'm not feeling it, I'll play the guitar, or go, even sometimes going to the store. And just watching people or kind of being out in the world will give me enough, uh, just a little tiny bit of good energy to start with a hopeful heart and then and then see what happens. And once I get started, it's kind of uh, the process itself is really energizing and I get kind of caught up in the task and book up in six six hours of my. <laughs> well, good. That's the ideal. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Tell me about this, you know, being mainly, I won't, I won't say mainly, but uh, being a a prolific short story writer, uh, in, in a lot of ways, what makes a good story for you, uh, in your opinion, what, what is a good story? Well, I think it's the writer's openness to the idea that every story is different and that she's going into this one. Of course you have your accumulated, you know, quote unquote wisdom having written stories before, but maybe a little bit like a, uh, an animal team or something. You say, okay, I've 
I've worked with this animal before, but there's a lot of danger here, so I better be careful. Uh, you're, you're kind of saying to the story, you please tell me what you would like to be, and I'm going to help you become that thing. And you're hoping that this story will work in a way unique to itself, uh, because that's in the story from that. I think that's what originality is, is you, you don't actually, you know, as you're starting, you pretend that you don't know any of the rules of what a short story is or isn't. And my feeling is basically if I, you know, if I'm telling a story to you, David, you know, you've, you're giving me a gift, the gift of your time and attention. Uh, in exchange, you want something that's uh, going to be emotionally powerful, or kind of a little roller coaster ride, and you want it to not be trivial. trivial. You, know, you want it to be somehow uh, related to your essential experience of life and beneficial in some way. So I feel like that's the contract. Now that leaves you a lot of room to work, you know. Uh, and then the second part for me would be that a story, the way I understand it now, is that it's a it's a, a system of language that basically reacts to itself. So whatever you've done in the first third of the story, you've set a lot of things in motion, and your ability to kind of bring those home is is why the reader recognizes it as a story. But in a way, you know, there's that old definition of pornography. You know, I know it when I see it. <laughs> and I think for me, that's the best idea of the stories. We don't know what they are. Every time you start when you're taking the lineage off in a new direction, and then um, there's a, a kind of a sequence of um, feelings that I get when I'm finishing a story that I couldn't really articulate. But having those feelings are the things that make me think, oh, yeah, this is actually... A short story as opposed to an anecdote or a sketch or something like that yeah no i get that um well tell me tell me about this you are still teaching at syracuse i am i was off this year uh but i start again in in, in the fall oh fantastic are you excited to get back into it i am i think i i really missed it i i think part of my um writing process involves teaching sort of like the the concentration on somebody else's work and the kind of uh, annoying lack of writing time for two or three days. <laughs> and then on Friday, I've got freedom, you know, for the next four days. And so there's some kind of a, a probably deeply Catholic tendency I have where I, I can't possibly enjoy myself seven days in a row at writing, but I can enjoy myself working at teaching for three and then writing for four. <laughs> and also at Syracuse, we get uh, 650 applications a year and we pick six people to come. Yeah. So they're astonishing. And just to be around those smart young minds is, uh, you know, it keeps you uh, hopping, but it also keeps you reverent about talent because you see that every generation has the same amount of talent and it, it might manifest in different ways. It might be, you know, curious about different things, but it doesn't, that's, that's an innate human thing. And, uh, so it's good. It's a kind of like warming yourself by the fire, you know, to go, yeah, it's, we're going to be good because these young people are still brilliant and still, ambitious and, and still trying to make beautiful things. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. That's a good thing to have, you know, in your corner. Um, what what yeah. books do you find yourself kind of coming back to continually, uh, either for inspiration or because you just love them? Yeah, I, I'm a, f a funny kind of a reader because I, I had an engineering background and I'm very spottily read. I've read pretty well in some areas and not at all in others. So I, I tend to come back to the Russians, uh, especially the 19th century Russians, um, Chekhov and Gogol and Turgenev and uh, Tolstoy, and then Isaac Babel towards the end of that tradition. And I don't know why, really. It might just be that I was reading them 
uh, when I was a student at Syracuse and when a, a lot of things fell into place for me. Those were the, the stories that did it, uh, especially Vogel for some reason. I, he's, um, I don't even know why I like him. The, the Dead Souls is a book I go back to again and again, and I, I don't. it's not the funniest book I ever read. It's not the most profound or the kind of most moving but there's something about it that really um, it makes me think that Gogol was an American a little bit. You know, the book is very full of crazy, uh, over-the-top people who um, all think they're right. You know, and, yeah. and somehow the idea of, a, of an American Dead Souls is intriguing. The other book I go back to, there's two. One is uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And I, A Christmas Carol, I think it just it just moves me so much, and I think structurally it's an, a masterpiece. And the Blue Die, I I read that just because it, it was um, maybe the f- it was a book that I read for the first time when I was about 26, I think, or 27, maybe yeah. a little bit older. But it it sent me back to my Catholic childhood when I had this uh, a few years of real intense religious feeling, um, and thinking that my at that time my understanding of Jesus was that. Jesus had this superpower of being able to love everybody and, and with all their flaws, you know, that he could look at you, know you and go, yep, you're all right. You know, you're not perfect, but you're all right. Uh, and when I was a kid, I had somehow from, I mean, we did a lot of going to church and, and stuff. And it just struck me that uh, that would be the most powerful position for a human being to be in is having no fear and all love. And when I read the bluest eye, there was some, uh, point of view shifts that just reminded me of that, that, that Jesus essentially was in my young mind, kind of a novelist in yeah. that he could inhabit every consciousness with equal uh, fondness. And I thought Toni Morrison did, did that really beautifully in that book. So I read, I read kind of to refresh my aspirations and to remember, you know, what I wanted to accomplish when I was 20. And uh, so I tend to go, go back to those books. Yeah, well, I can see. Well, awesome. Well, our our time is is very short, but I do want to wrap up with one question. Um, what are you working on right now? And also, what are you reading? Well, I just you know I have had not as much writing time this year as I as I'd like, so I just started a story, and I've got about eighteen pages of it, and it's a total mess, and which is I love because I feel like oh yeah, I can still do this. I can still make a big mess and then feel neurotic about it. I'm a writer, uh, and. I'm reading, I'm actually set myself to this mission of trying to uh, read Shakespeare, all of the Shakespeare plays in order. So I've got this beautiful Oxford edition, and I'm kind of plowing through that and uh, just uh, trying to, you know, kind of remind myself of why people love Shakespeare. And of course, a lot of the plays I've never read before. So I think I think what I'm doing is kind of, you know, plowing the fields to start something else, uh, maybe bigger and um you know, who knows? But again, for me, most of the writing process is just saying, I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm doing next and no idea what I'm in the middle of. And then kind of trusting that your subconscious will, will get you out of all the fixes you get yourself into. Yeah, no, I get that. Well, one, one follow-up. Uh, uh, during your Shakespeare reading so far, have you found a, a favorite that you didn't expect? Well, I found, I've been reading these the early history plays, which are a real slog. And uh, I can't say that I love them, but I'm but I'm reminded of something really powerful about Shakespeare, which is, you know, he'll have these two families fighting over the crown, uh, and he absolutely refuses to root for one over the other. So they're both equally good or equally bad, depending on, well, they just are, you know, so both of them are murdering each other's kids and celebrating about it and claiming 
that God is on their side. And that's something, you know, we don't see too often in, in fiction or especially in TV or movies. You always kind of know who the good guys are. And uh, he seems to have a beautiful gift for kind of saying they're both good and they're both bad and then just letting them fight it out. So that was kind of, that's kind of, that's gotten into my head a little bit. I don't, don't know what I'll do with it, but I like that idea. Yeah. All right. Well, well George, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you taking the time, David. Thank you so much. I was just speaking with author George Saunders, who last year won the Man Booker Prize for his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. And that's our show. You are listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of our interviews will be archived on WRBH's SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash WRBHreadingradio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.